Okay, um, so it's going to be hard to do this one-handed. So map of Galilee, remember our four regions and four cities? Okay, and so this week, I, um, um, Sylvia's way ahead as usual, and she has a map for you that we will use in talking about Paul's missionary journeys. Okay, and so on the front side, we're going to talk about uh, four countries and four cities for the book of Acts. And on the back side is actually a uh, map of Paul's missionary journeys. Time out for technical help. All right. How's that? All right. So far, so good. Um, Okay. So one other thing I forgot to do last week, even though I had it sitting here, was uh, uh, here is a book called The Bible Knowledge Commentary. It is written by a bunch of uh, professors from Dallas Seminary and uh, Dallas Seminary graduates and whatnot. And if you are looking for a commentary, it's actually a two-volume set. One is on the Old Testament, one on the New. Thank you, Jeff. Everybody give uh, Jeff Grandy a big round of applause. In his day job, he probably doesn't get a lot of applause. He is a Dallas police detective. Um, so um, you should feel safe in here in any event. Um, but this book is a great tool for helping you um, go deeper into uh, both the Old Testament and the New. There is a um, section in here on every book of the Old Testament, every book of the New Testament. This is the New Testament version. There's another, or there's another volume that's just the Old Testament. Okay. And uh, I've got another book here that I'll just briefly mention. It's called Talk Through the Bible. And when we get to the epistles, I want to uh, talk to you about th- this. It's also uh, written, uh, has a section on every book of the Bible and is a great resource. Uh, even today, as I uh, am studying uh, a book I haven't looked at for a while, I'll go check this out because of the great overview that it gives you. It's called Talk Through the Bible by uh, Bruce Wilkinson and Ken Boa. Okay, so those are a couple of good uh, resources for you. Let me pray and we'll get rolling. Lord, thanks for the chance to pause in the midst of a busy week and a busy day to acknowledge that, uh, Father, uh, um, you are indeed our priority. And knowing more about your son, knowing more about his word, and uh, then taking those truths and hiding them in our hearts that we might not sin against him, that we might uh, walk in a manner worthy of our calling, and that we might honor you in um, what we think, say, and do. So thanks for each one of these friends uh, who have taken time tonight to be here. And may uh, your spirit illuminate the truths of the word. And may we uh, have a better understanding of uh, what's going on in the New Testament. So thanks for this time. Amen. All right. So let's get rolling and let's jump right into um, what we're going to cover tonight. We'll do a little bit of uh, geography. Then uh, um, we're going to cover the uh, book of Acts and we'll talk about five... uh, points for you to remember about the book of Acts. And then we simply don't have time to cover each one of the uh, epistles, although if we have enough time at the end, um, I am prepared to talk to you about every epistle, okay? Um, But um, we're going to focus on the book of Romans and the book of Hebrews, 
which are two books that you need to master uh, as you learn more and more about Christ, okay, especially the book of Romans. And so we'll spend some time walking through each one of those and um, do the same thing, give you five points that I hope help you pull together an overview of each of those books. And then remember, next week we're going to have uh, uh, the whole hour and a half will be devoted to uh, the book of Revelation. I was working on those slides today. It's going to be really fun, so don't miss that. All right, so um, here's a quick little review from last week. And uh, remember the four pictures we talked about for uh, Christ in the Gospels? Matthew depicts Christ as the king. Um, we pick Matthew 16, 16 as a key verse for the book because in it, uh, Peter answers the great question, who do you say that I am? And he gives the right answer, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then in uh, the gospel of Mark, Mark depicts Christ as the suffering servant, right? Uh, Mark ten forty five, Jesus says that... Uh, um, but even the Son of Man came uh, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, and thereby establishing the perfect example for us to be willing to go out and serve others. And then uh, the Gospel of Luke was unique because one of the reasons, at least, it was written by a guy who was a Gentile, yeah. Or you could have said physician, or you could have said historian, and all three would be right. Um, Dr. Luke was a, an interesting guy, and we're going to get to see the second part of his writing for the New Testament in the book of Acts today, okay? And uh, um, his gospel depicts Christ as the Son of Man. Where does that title come from? came from Jesus, but uh, ultimately it came from Daniel. Yeah, the book of Daniel. You know which chapter? Uh, okay, Daniel's good, though. It's actually from Daniel 7, okay? And it describes one like a son of man who is described as being divine, related to the ancient of days. And so you can check out Daniel 7 to see where the title son of man comes from. And uh, as I mentioned last week, um, Jesus uses that title for himself over 80 times in the Gospels. And it's a perfect title for uh, Luke's Gospel because Luke's focus was on Gentiles, but even broader than just the Gentiles. The lost. And we, we call all those folks the lost, the Gentiles, the... Um, children, the women, the sick, uh, etc. We called them outsiders. And he focused on outsiders. And uh, the verse we picked there was uh, Luke 19.10, uh, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And then finally, in the Gospel of John, he's depicted as the... You know, I really shouldn't put that up there, should I? I ought to make y'all... Or at least look at your notes, okay? But uh, um, he depicts Christ as the Son of God. You know, we talked about uh, um, one way you can outline the book is uh, uh, as the book of signs and the book of glory, okay? You can see that in the uh, column uh, for outline there in John. 
And remember John 20, 31? He says, uh, But I have written these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing in him you might have life, eternal life in his name. That was the purpose of the book of John. Okay? So there's a quick review from last week. Any particular questions from last week? All right, let's keep mushing then. All right, you've got a big map of this, so you can look on up here, or you can just follow along on your map on the seat, but we're going to talk about four countries and four cities in the book of Acts, okay? And so let's start with the four countries. Here's the first one, Galatia, you know, uh, the recipient's church there, the letter to the Galatians. And it's simply a, a part of modern-day Turkey. You can see it uh, highlighted there on the map with a blue arrow. Okay? Galatia. All these are places that Paul visited on his missionary journeys that we'll talk about in the book of Acts. And then Achaia. What's Achaia called today? Greece. Yeah, it's simply Greece. You see cities like Athens and Corinth are... You know, right there where they are today and have been since uh, before the time of Christ, okay? And then uh, the next one we'll highlight is Asia, which is right next door to Galatia, just immediately west of Galatia. And then finally, the, the superpower of the day was Rome, okay? And so Rome was both an empire and also a city, and we'll highlight it as one of our cities as well. And then also in the uh, book of Acts, you can see the references where uh, these various cities are identified. Uh, we have the city of Antioch. Who can give me something that's unique about the city of Antioch? Or remarkable in the history of the church? Hmm? Paul's hometown? No. Um, he's typically referred to as Saul of Tarsus. Well, a couple of things about Antioch I would mention. It's a place where um, Acts identified uh, followers of Christ first being called Christians. Okay? And it actually was a, uh, could have been a term of derision that, hey, these guys just want to be little Christ's. Um, and, you know, today I say, yes, give me a help, a big dose of that. I want to be like Christ. So um, believers were first called Christians in Antioch. And it's also remarkable for the fact that every one of Paul's missionary journeys started and ended in Antioch. And what you have to be careful about with Antioch is that you can even see on the map here, here is another Antioch. Okay, that's called Antioch of Poseida, and it's identified as such. It's actually mentioned in the New Testament. Um, you can see it right over here, Antioch of Poseida. Okay, that's not the Antioch that we're highlighting here. It's this one right here near Tarsus, where Paul's hometown was. Okay, and so uh, um, Paul's journey started and ended in uh, Antioch. All right, then we have uh, Ephesus, Church of, uh, the, of Ephesus, 
was the recipient of uh, uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Paul spent several years in Ephesus, and it was also the home base later on for the Apostle John. And in fact, when John was exiled, and the place where he wrote uh, the book of Revelation was right off the uh, uh, coast of um, what's modern-day Turkey today, but there's Ephesus right there, and here is Patmos, an island just right off the coast uh, from uh, Ephesus. You can see Ephesus here and Patmos right here. So John was exiled there while he wrote uh, the uh, the book of Revelation. Okay? Then we have Caesarea. I've been to Caesarea. Um, It is known in the book of Acts, in Acts 26, for where Paul made a defense before Felix and Festus. You can read those passages. And in fact, uh, um, in the very place where Paul made his defense, the stadium still uh, stands. And uh, um, I had the privilege of listening to Acts 26 and 27 being read as we sat right there. It was really a pretty cool experience. Okay, so that's Caesarea. This is Caesarea by the sea. Okay? Um, Herod the Great built a a great seaport as a part of Caesarea. And then finally, we're back to Rome. Okay? So uh, I hope that uh, this will help you as you're reading and studying through the book of Acts. And let me encourage you that when you come to a new place, like if you're following along on Paul's missionary journeys... Uh, see if you can figure out where that place is by looking at some of the maps that are available online. Okay, so four uh, countries, four cities that are important for the book of Acts. Any questions about those? Yes, ma'am. The uh, uh, question she asked was uh, the parentheticals after each one of the city names. It uh, starts with the chapter. So that would be uh, for Rome, you could look in chapter 28, verse 14, or verse 16. Okay? Yeah. So that last 16 is a verse. Yes, sir. Uh, of the missionary journeys? Well, that's a great question. We don't have the dates pinned down exactly, but we know approximately. Um, for example, the gospel, or I'm sorry, the book of Acts itself only covers about 30 years. And in that time frame, Paul had time to travel um, three missionary journeys and then one journey to Rome when he uh, demanded to be tried by Caesar, um, when he'd been accused by the Jews of. Uh, offenses uh, against Rome, okay? So uh, these journeys would last, you know, I don't have an exact uh, um, number of uh, months or or years even because on some of them, Paul went and stayed for a number of years like in the um, city of Ephesus, he stayed for like three years. So, you know, uh, think 30 years for the whole book of Acts and the journeys would have been a much smaller portion Uh, of that, but it would have been something that would have taken a year or two, likely for uh, just about all the journeys. Okay? Does that help? 
Any other questions? All right, well, let's dig into the book of Acts. And let me start by saying, you know, the title is a little bit overstated because it's really not the Acts of the Apostles. It's primarily the Acts of two Apostles. Which ones? Paul is one. And Peter, yeah, Peter and Paul are the two stars of the book of Acts. And yes, some, some of the other disciples are mentioned in there. Some of the other apostles are mentioned. Uh, but primarily the focus is on Peter in the first half of the book and Paul in the second half of the book. Okay? And so it's really more of a story of the start and spread of the church from Jerusalem and all the way to the ends of the ancient world um, rather than being a, a complete history of all the acts of the various apostles. And as I mentioned, it covers a period of about 30 years, beginning with uh, uh, Jesus' ascension, which uh, um, a lot of scholars pinpoint to A.D. 33. And it ends with Paul's house arrest uh, in approximately A.D. 62 in um, Rome. And so Luke just wrote two of the New Testament books, two out of 27, um, but they comprise about 27%. Over a quarter of the uh, uh, New Testament is made up of these two books, the book of Luke and uh, uh, the book of Acts. And uh, interestingly, Luke is the longest book of uh, the New Testament, whereas uh, um, Acts is actually the third longest. Anybody know what the second longest is? Romans? No. Not Revelation, but that's a good guess. 22 chapters in Revelation. Not Hebrews. Matthew. There you go. Matthew. 28 chapters in Matthew, but it's actually a, a little bit shorter, a few verses shorter uh, than the Gospel of Luke. Okay, so Luke's the longest, Matthew's the second, and Acts is the third longest book. And uh, um, another thing I should have done last week is um, when you're trying to remember, and remember I, I encouraged you to re memorize all the books of the New Testament, you can help yourself remember how many there are by uh, recognizing, as Blake probably shared with you about the Old Testament, how many books are there in the Old Testament? And how do we remember that? There you go. And you can do the same thing with New Testament. How many letters in New? Okay, three. Someone said seven. That threw me off for a second. Now there are three letters in Old. I mean, in New. Now I'm really thrown off. Okay? Um, and there are nine in New in Testament. And three times nine is? 27 books in the New Testament. Okay? All right. So remember when we talked about the Gospel of Luke, Luke had some purposes for writing uh, the Gospel of Luke, and he set those out right in the beginning of the book. And he has uh, similar sort of purposes in writing the book of Acts. And the first is to record the events that show the spread of the Gospel in the church as it branches out from Jerusalem, uh, which was the center of uh, um, 
Judaism, where the church began, all the way to Rome and to the other parts of the Gentile uh, earth. And then second, he wants to show how God's plans and purposes were working out through history. In particular, um, he shows how Christ was faithfully and irresistibly building his church, just as he promised in Matthew sixteen eighteen. And this involved clarifying how God was dealing with mankind and how it had taken a different course because of the Jews' rejection of their Messiah. And then finally, he seeks to provide an apologetic tool uh, to help believers uh, in that day. Uh, in fact, he f- frequently points out the relationship of the church to the Roman state. Uh, he uh, refers to a bunch of different Roman officials. And interestingly, not one of those officials opposed Christianity because of either its doctrines or its practices. Now, you know, Paul was arrested um, and... Uh, um, was ultimately tried before Caesar, uh, but that was trumped-up charges brought on by the Jews. Okay, and we'll take a look at that as we uh, look at the end of Acts. Okay, so let's dive into our purposes. I, uh, I picked a picture here. Anybody know what that picture is of? Baptism, one of the baptism days here at Watermark. And I picked that because, you know, gang, that is indeed the book of Acts going on today. And uh, if you've not experienced uh, uh, baptism at Watermark uh, this coming May, uh, we'll have two or three hundred folks getting baptized. And so don't miss that day. It is a really, really fun day. How many of y'all have been baptized here at Watermark? So a few? Okay. In the creek. That was in the good old days. I also was baptized in the creek. That was fun. Okay? All right. So um, let's look at our five things to remember about the book of Acts. And let's start by looking at Acts 1.8. This is what I picked as the key verse for the book because it really provides a geographic outline of the book. Okay? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And there is a very succinct but very accurate outline of the book of Acts. Okay? Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Okay? And let's take a look just to uh, um, show you. Uh, turn over to uh, Acts 8.1. Okay, so the first section's focused on Jerusalem. And then in Acts 8.1, like any good uh, historian, Paul tells us that, I'm sorry, uh, um, Luke tells us that um, we're getting ready to change scenes. And look at how 8.1 begins. And Saul the guy that became the Apostle Paul, approved of his execution, meaning Stephen's execution we've just read about in Acts 7. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. 
And you know what had happened there? The church had started off like a house of fire, literally. You know, the uh, Pentecost, we'll talk a little bit about Pentecost. Uh, But the early church had gotten comfortable in Jerusalem. And the Lord, in the way that only he can, says, okay, I need to, you know, break these guys up and send them out because it, my church isn't going to be just here in Jerusalem. And so he permits persecution to come on the uh, uh, church in Jerusalem, and it causes uh, people to scatter to Judea and Samaria. And then more persecutions arise, and they keep going to the ends of the earth. And so, you know, gang... Um, we often are ask ourselves and we often are asked, you know, why does the Lord allow suffering and persecution uh, to happen? Well, sometimes he's using it to further the gospel by spreading out his people to regions that have not yet been reached for the gospel, okay? And so he does that right there uh, to uh, blast the church out of uh, Jerusalem where they had all covied up. And uh, um, then the gospel starts to spread. And so, be my witnesses, and the witness mandate is something to remember throughout the book of Acts. Um, You'll see continued references to people who are being witnesses to the risen Christ. One of the key ideas of the book. Okay? So be on the lookout for references to people who are indeed being witnesses. All right, so that's the first point. The next one is that, remember how Matthew used a little uh, device to let you know that uh, one of the discourses was ending and he was getting ready to shift scenes? Well, Luke does the same thing in the book of Acts. He uses progress reports on the spread of the gospel to move his story along, okay? So let's take a minute and just go look at some of these. So turn to uh, first uh, to Acts two forty two through forty seven. Anybody remember uh, um, verses that uh, Wagner shares during the membership classes? How many have been through the membership classes here at Watermark? Everybody hear Wagner speak during those? Remember him reading something that described the early church? It's right here, Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the, and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came on every soul, and many signs and wonders uh, were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and, all, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds um, um, let's see, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And here is that uh, progress report. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Okay, so there's progress report number one. Now let's turn to uh, uh, chapter 6, verse 7. And you'll see a similar sort of thing. 
And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The next one's in uh, um, chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So you can see how the church is spreading um, day by day. Chapter 12, verse 24. And the word of God increased and multiplied. There we go. As uh, We're getting ready to shift scene and start focusing in on Paul's missionary journeys. And then even after his missionary journeys, look at uh, chapter 16, verse 5. And so the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. How about that? They increased in numbers daily. Chapter 19, verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And then finally, uh, at the end of the book, the final progress report is in chapter 28, verse 31, the last book of, or the last verse of the book. And this is Paul proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. Um, he spent two years doing that as um, the gospel spread throughout um, the Roman guard that was guarding him. Okay, so Luke uses these progress reports to advance the story from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the uh, um, then known earth. Okay, so that's the second big point. Seven progress reports in the book. The next two uh, big points uh, really are... um, in so many words, an outline of the book, because we have the start of the church, and then we have the spread of the church. The start of the church really is uh, chapters 1 through 12, as the church gets off the ground. And there, uh, I just picked three uh, items that we have. uh, Peter being the uh, primary apostle during that time frame, Um, the uh, start of the church at Pentecost being the big event of that time frame, and then finally, the persecutions that came that caused the church to start to spread from Jerusalem. And then the next point, or the fourth big thing to remember, is the spread of the church. And that covers from chapter 13 uh, through the rest of the book as Paul uh, goes outside of uh, Judea and Samaria uh, to the ends of the earth. And uh, um, there, Paul obviously is the focus um, The key events are his four journeys. Three of them are his missionary journeys where he's going around starting churches. And then the final one is when he is appealed to Caesar and he's being taken to Rome to stand trial, ultimately where he'll be uh, executed. Okay? And then uh, the key events I picked for that uh, was Paul's imprisonment that uh, corresponds to the persecutions. Okay? 
So start of the church, chapters 1 through 12, spread of the church in chapters 13 through 28. And so obviously we don't have time to teach through the whole book of Acts, but what I'm hoping is this gives you an outline that will help you as you read through the book of Acts know where you are in the book. Are you dealing with the start of the church or are you dealing with the spread of the church? You know, who's the, who's the, the main character uh, in your particular section? If you're in the first 12 chapters, it's typically Peter, although uh, we start to see Paul come on the scene first as Saul of Tar- Tarsus as he's per- persecuting the church and coming to have his Damascus Road experience where he meets the resurrected Christ. Okay? And then the last, uh, um, from chapter 13 on, we focus on the spread of the church. And you have at your seats also um, a map that uh, will be a lot easier to read. And so hang on to this when you're studying the book of Acts, and you can follow along on where Paul is throughout his missionary journeys and match up the cities you're reading about with where they are on the map. So I hope this helps you. Um, and you can track through not only his first three missionary journeys, but it also covers his journey to Rome as well. Okay? All right, and the final thing I picked for the uh, uh, book of uh, Acts is that uh, uh, I describe it as ending on a comma. And why do I say that? Well, let's go look at uh, verse 31 again. talking about Paul. Verse 30, it says he lived there uh, for two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came in. He was proclaiming the kingdom of God. He was proclaiming the gospel uh, to those Roman soldiers who were responsible for guarding and to all that uh, actually came to visit him. And uh, he was teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And it just stops. And, you know, I heard uh, this described in a a message uh, delivered by a friend of mine. He said, it's like it ends on a comma. And that's because that story is still being written. It was written on baptism day in that picture as people had a chance to uh, give an account for the hope that's within them to describe um, how they had come to put their trust in Christ Their baptism has nothing to do with their salvation, but simply was an opportunity for them to proclaim that they had put their trust in Christ. And so that story goes on, and it goes on tonight, and it goes on in your life as you have opportunities to give an account for the hope that's within you to your uh, family, to your friends, your neighbors, to your co-workers, and the gospel keeps spreading. And that's a pretty cool thing that we had the privilege of being a part of what's being written after that comma. And so I love the fact that the book of Acts ends like it ends on a comma and that we have the opportunity to play a role in the rest of the book. The rest of the book that's not even yet finished being written. Okay, so remember how um, when we were talking about the Gospel of Mark 
about how it was an eyewitness account and it puts you in the story and you had to make a decision about who do you say that this um, man of action truly was? Were those just, you know, uh, parlor tricks that uh, Jesus did or were those authenticating miracles that proved that he was indeed the promised Messiah? And so, you know, the Gospel of Mark was written in such a way to say, you've got to make a decision. And I love how... Uh, Acts ends because it does the same thing and says, hey, what are you going to do? How are you going to be continuing to further the spread of the gospel to continue to write this story? All right, so there in uh, a nutshell is the book of Acts. Key idea and key verse, the witness mandate, be my witnesses. That's what we're called to do. Day in and day out, be my witnesses. You know, as you, your floor, as your feet hit the floor each morning, we ought to each be praying, Lord, send me somebody that I can share my hope with today. It's distinctive are these seven progress reports that help us uh, follow the uh, spread of the gospel and the spread of the church. Um, 1 through 12 focus on the start of the church, Peter, Pentecost, and persecutions. Chapters 13 through 18 focus on Paul, uh, his three missionary journeys, and his final trip to Rome, and his final imprisonment. And then we end on a comma, parting thought. All right, there's the book of Acts. How we doing? Questions? All right, well, let's keep uh, rolling, and we'll take a little break after we deal with the book of Romans. Okay, and so as we go to Romans, let's stop and just for a second talk about the, the epistles as an overview. Okay, so six authors. Paul wrote most of them. He wrote 13 books. Uh, James wrote one. Peter wrote a couple. Jude, uh, James and Jude were both uh, half-brothers of Jesus. Uh, Then the Apostle John also wrote three letters and the book of Revelation. And then finally, we have Mr. Uh, Unknown uh, as the last author author, uh, um, of the book of Hebrews. We really don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but I want to suggest to you a few possibilities uh, when we get there. Okay? And so these letters are written to churches. They're written to groups of people, and they're also written to individuals. And then the last uh, uh, statement up here is really important and will help you as you study uh, these different epistles. Because the general pattern that each one uses is that there is a discussion of a point of doctrine, and it's followed by a description of, hey, what are we to do as our duty as followers of Christ in living out that doctrine. Okay, so the book of uh, Romans is a good example. Um, The first eight chapters are all about salvation. Okay? And then uh, um, you see in chapters 9 through 11 uh, how the uh, Jews and Gentiles fit into God's plan of salvation. And then it concludes with uh, the final five chapters, 12 through 16, are all about the duty of living out that salvation, working out our salvation with fear and trembling, 
Paul describes it in uh, Philippians 2. Okay? Uh, the book of Ephesians, same sort of thing. First half of the book, first three chapters or so, uh, are all about doctrine, our position in Christ. And then the last three or so chapters uh, are all about our duty to live in light of that position in Christ. Okay? So remember that as you read through the epistles. This book is a great overview summary of each one of the books of the Bible. And particularly as you're reading through the epistles, it'll um, talk about the author, the date, the setting, um, key ideas, themes, all sorts of stuff that will give you a running start as you read through uh, various epistles. Okay? But gang, this book is no substitute for you doing your own reading. Okay? If, you, if the first thing you do is to go pick up the Bible knowledge commentary and read through it, well, that's going to tell you what uh, Dr. Grasmick thinks or uh, Dr. Constable or one of those guys. But the question is, what do you think? And you know, um, we often talk about here about the uh, six steps of Bible study, the six C's of Bible study. And it's only on the fourth C, after we've um, determined the context and gathered the clues and compared and contrasted with uh, other scriptures, it's only on that fourth C that we consult outside sources. So we've got to do our own work. Okay? There is no substitute for you doing the reading yourself. And then when you get to the point of you've exhausted uh, what other scripture has to say about it and whatnot, uh, then go look at something like this or uh, Dr. Constable's notes at soniclight.com. He too, I think I mentioned it last week, has notes on every book of the Bible. That's a great place to go after you've done your own work, but not before you've done your work. Okay, you with me on that? Okay. Um, so remember this pattern, doctrine then duty. It's a, a, a general pattern for uh, the epistles. And so let's dive into the uh, book of uh, uh, Romans before I run out of time here. And let me start by reading something Martin Luther wrote about the book of Romans. He said, Romans is not only is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of your soul. It can never be read or pondered too much, and the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. It's Paul's longest letter, and it's really um, more of a treatise than a letter. Some have likened it to his last will and testament, that he sat down and said, hey, if I get hit by a bus, I want to write everything I know about salvation so that uh, these churches, and he was writing to a, a church that he actually had not started. Uh, someone else had started, but it was an uh, important church in uh, the time of the early church um, to the Romans. Okay, biggest city in the world, and obviously an important place for spreading Christianity. 
but he sits down to write a treatise on salvation. And then he talks about, hey, how do we live in light of this salvation? Uh, Paul wrote Romans in approximately A.D. 57 during a three-month stay in Greece, and more specifically, he was uh, in Corinth. It was uh, during his third missionary journey. And interestingly, he gave it to Phoebe uh, from the church at uh, Centria, which is a, a port city right near Corinth. And she actually carried it to Romans. You can read about that in Romans 16, verses 1 and 2. And so the church was well known. Uh, uh, if you look at Romans 1.8, let's see what Paul says. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. I would covet that for Watermark, that your faith at Watermark would be proclaimed in all the world. So the city itself was the greatest city in the world at that time, um, over a million inhabitants at that uh, particular time. And uh, um, it is Paul's greatest treatise on salvation. Okay, so five points about uh, the book of uh, Romans. And uh, um, gang, this was hard to just get it down to five points. But I want to begin with the theme. And the theme is that it's all about salvation. Okay, so let's read, turn to uh, Romans 1, 16 and 17. Key verses for the book. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God, there's another big key uh, theme for the book of Romans, the righteousness of God, is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And so, gang, there is the theme. It combines salvation and righteousness and faith. And by trusting in Christ, the believer is saved from the penalty of sin. You know, that looks at the past, the point in time where we made the decision to trust in Christ. Um, we could call that uh, salvation the past tense of uh, um, our Christian journey. And then it also deals with uh, um, the power of sin and how we are set free from the power of sin. And that's the present tense of the Christian life as we are being sanctified, being made like Christ so that we are uh, set free from the power of sin over our lives. And then finally, um, we're set free from the presence of sin. That looks to the future where either by death or removal of the church at the rapture, that uh, we will be released from the presence of sin in our lives. That's sometimes also called glorification. So did you get that? Salvation, that's the time when you made the decision to trust in Christ. But it's also the overview process of the whole thing is also called salvation. So that's sometimes kind of confusing. So it's the point in time when you trusted in Christ. It delivers us from the penalty of sin and looks at uh, that past decision that you made. 
And so today, as you sit here, you're in the midst of the present tense of the Christian life. Um, Our sanctification, where we're becoming more and more like Christ is the goal. We're working out our salvation with fear and trembling, Paul says in uh, Philippians 2.12. Okay, that releases us from the power of sin in our lives. And then finally, glorification is the future tense of the Christian life, where we're uh, delivered from the presence of sin. So, man, there is a bunch packed in to uh, the the book of uh, uh, Romans. And right here, these theme verses capture a snapshot of it all. All right, another thing I love um, the book of Romans for is that it has a bunch of great verses that are the gospel in a single verse. And um, I challenge you to look for other verses that are the gospel in a single verse. There, there are a bunch of them. Um, you can check out some in Second um, um, Corinthians 5 or whatnot. But I've written up here Romans 6.23. If you Google uh, one verse evangelism, uh, there will pop up a little sheet from the navigators, just one page that will walk you through what's commonly called the bridge illustration. Okay? And it takes the words of this verse and walks people through uh, the gospel. And so over here, y'all are going to be really amazed by my creative artwork. Uh, you've got man on this side. And then over on this side, you have God. And this chasm represents something that is uh, way bigger than the Grand Canyon and way more daunting than me trying to jump over the Grand Canyon. You know, if we all lined up and started running to try to jump over the Grand Canyon, some of y'all look like you're in pretty good shape, and you may get pretty far out into the canyon. But nobody makes it all the way because we just can't do it. And so the chasm between man and God is infinitely wider than that. And we are infinitely less able to bridge that gap. Okay? And so why is that? Well, we know what wages are. What are wages? Yeah, that's something you, you do. You get paid for what you've done. It's what you earn or deserve from putting in a hard day's uh, work. Okay? But the wages we're talking about are the wages of sin. Okay? Sin is simply missing the mark. You know, falling short of God's perfect standard of righteousness. And the wages of sin is death. And so, gang, there is nothing but bad news over here. You got to work, it produces sin, and uh, or sin uh, produces uh, death. There is nothing good about uh, things on man's side. But look what is available to us as a free gift. This free gift comes from God. And so we know it's a good and perfect gift. And what is it? Eternal life. It's nothing we earn or deserve but it's a free gift that's made available to all who call on the name of Christ. 
And here we have what I call a grace but. And this but says that there is a solution to this uh, um, gulf that can't be crossed. Someone crossed it. Man wasn't able to cross it. But Christ Jesus our Lord was able to, by paying the price for my sin, and he provided the bridge for me to be able to cross from death into life. And all I have to do is put my trust in Christ. And it will allow me, on the basis of what he's done, cross that uncrossable gulf. How long did that take? Two or three minutes? You can do it on a cocktail napkin. And it's an easy way to give the gospel to whoever you're talking to. One verse evangelism. You know, Romans 6.23 is an easy verse to memorize, and it is a powerful verse to share the gospel with others. All right, so we've got our theme. We've got uh, one verse evangelism. All right, so now buckle your chin straps. Uh, We want to talk about some big theological words that are important in the book of Romans, okay? So I've got five of them. The first one is justification, okay? You can see these verses. We'll actually go look at a couple of these verses. Um, But justification simply means being declared righteous, okay? It's not just as as if I never sinned. No, that's not it at all. It's that we are declared righteous on the basis of Christ's work on the cross. And so we are imputed with his righteousness, and we get to take advantage of this free gift. And it produces eternal life. And so justification simply means being declared righteous by faith in Christ on the basis of Christ's work on the cross. Let's look at uh, Romans uh, uh, 5. And in these verses that I've highlighted, you'll see the word either used or described. And here it's actually used. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, just think declared righteous, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Same, uh, uh, same word appears in verse 9, uh, chapter 5, verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Okay, so justification, being declared righteous. The next one is propitiation. I can barely say that, much less be able to uh, uh, explain it, okay? But it simply means that um, God's wrath, his righteous anger, has not only been satisfied, but has been turned away by Christ's work on the cross in my place. Is that a good deal or what? Okay, Let's look at that. We just uh, looked in uh, verse 9, 5, 9, and we'll stay right there. Um, the idea of uh, propitiation is described there. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him 
from the wrath of God. He satisfied the wrath of God, taking my place, paying my judgment tab, okay? You can also look at uh, Romans 3.25 for propitiation. All right, redemption. It's directed towards sin because it deals with being purchased out of the slave market of sin. Okay, let's look at uh, um, Romans uh, uh, 6.22. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Set free from sin. That's the picture of being purchased out of the slave market of sin. That's the idea of redemption that you can also read about in Romans 3.24. Okay? Um, reconciliation. There's a good one. Let's go back uh, to uh, Romans 5.1. And since we've been declared righteous, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what reconciliation is all about. Restoration of peace between God and man through Christ's work on the cross. We never say that uh, God is reconciled to us. We always say that we are reconciled to God. Okay? So reconciliation simply uh, describes the um, uh, restoration of peace. Okay, so are, are you getting these? Being declared righteous, that's justification. Satisfying God's wrath, that's propitiation. Uh, being purchased out of the slave market of sin, that's redemption. And re- the restoration of peace between God and man, that's reconciliation. And the final one is sanctification. Let's go back to uh, 619. Um, let's see... Da, 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 da. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, uh, so now present your members, present your bodies as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Okay? And so what is sanctification? It's simply being conformed to the image of Christ, becoming more and more like Christ. Okay? Um, it requires obedience. It delivers us from the power of sin in our lives. And it's something that uh, um, calls for us to work on it on a daily basis. Sanctification. Okay? It, too, has uh, really three parts. Okay? There's a past part. Um, That's where we are positionally. Okay? Um, God sees us through the eyes of Christ and through Christ's work on the cross. And so... Positionally, we are sanctified in Christ. And the present um, aspect of sanctification is progressive. And that's what uh, we're doing right now. We're working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Okay? That's progressive. We're becoming more and more like Christ. And then finally, the, the future aspect of sanctification is perfection, when we will be like Christ because we will have put off this mortal body and we will put on a resurrection body just like his and we will belong to him and be with him forever. And we then will be without sin uh, because of his work. And so the future aspect uh, is 
perfection when we're delivered from the presence of sin in our lives. Does that make sense? It helps me to think about the three aspects of sanctification. Okay? We have a positional aspect, we have an experiential aspect that we're experiencing right now, and we have a future aspect that we one day will experience. Okay? So those are five big concepts in the uh, book of Romans that it will help you understand Paul's discussion of salvation if you understand these ideas, okay? And so as you think through them, you know, when you see the big word justified or justification, you simply think declared righteous. And when you see propitiation, you think, you know, uh, God's wrath has been satisfied. And uh, redemption being purchased out of the slave market of sin reconciliation, peace being restored between God and you, and then finally sanctification becoming more and more like Christ. All right, and the final idea, uh, actually there are two more. Um, I wanted to set forth a couple of different outlines for the book, okay? One is used in five S's. Chapters 1 through 3 deal with sin, 4 and 5, salvation, uh, 6 through 8, sanctification, Uh, 9 through 11 deal with God's sovereignty, and then uh, chapters 12 through 16 deal with our service and how we live out um, our salvation. Another way to look at it is uh, chapters 1 through 8 deal with God's um, sovereign plan of salvation. Uh, Then chapters 9 through 11 describe how the Jews and Gentiles fit into that plan. And then finally, um, 12 through 16 is an exhortation of how to live in accordance with that plan. And so I hope that those will help you understand kind of where you are in the progression of Paul's argument in the book of um, Romans. A couple more key words that appear in the book at least 40 times each are sin, law, righteousness, faith, and the little word all. And finally, you need to pay particular attention to Romans 8. It contains the greatest concentration of references to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. There's an average of at least one reference to the Holy Spirit almost every two verses. Uh, And this chapter explains the benefits of salvation and sanctification made uh, available through the presence and power of God's Holy Spirit who indwells every believer and it concludes with the greatest statement on eternal security that I know about. And so, gang, if you're sitting there sometime um, wondering, you know, is this really all true? Um, Can I lose my salvation? Go read Romans 8, 38, and 39, and be reminded that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. Yes, ma'am. Uh huh. So how does that tie in? I mean, when you're talking to somebody, they, a lot of people seem to have a problem with that. And it's like, well, why do I have to be saved if God's already you know, picked me out? And you're asking a question that has not been adequately answered in 2,000 years. And so the chances of me being able to answer it in 30 seconds... Uh, uh, is great. You know, I used to talk about 
uh, election. Uh, the question was, uh, could I explain the role of predestination in salvation? Okay? Um, I would have a better chance of explaining the superconducting super collider than I would of uh, doing that. But I'd love to talk with you offline, um, and so we won't take class time to do that. But anybody who wants to talk about that, come on up, and we will do so afterwards. Uh, but it's a great question. And just because it's not been satisfactorily answered, at least from my perspective, um, by anybody ever, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't think about the implications of it for our lives. But the bottom line is that God calls us uh, to make a decision to trust in him. And he says that, hey, I am sovereign and I call Uh, people to come to faith in Christ. I think he calls everyone and gives everybody that chance to do so, okay? But he says that uh, those that I have predestined will accept that call, okay? And uh, um, we still have, at the same time that God is sovereign, we still have the responsibility to exercise our volitional decision to put our trust in Christ, And somehow those truths of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility somewhere intersect for us to make a decision uh, to trust Christ. But those are truths that are taught in Scripture. We shouldn't run from them, but we need to recognize that it is hard to explain something on this side of uh, eternity that, you know, people have wrestled with for a long, long time. That's as good as I can do in 30 seconds. Okay, uh, but I'd love to talk more about that. All right, so finally, and uh, time has gotten away a little bit, so I'm afraid uh, I'm trampling on your break, uh, but chapter 16 of Romans is important, and I want us to turn to uh, Romans 16 right now. Okay, so this is one of those blah, 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 blah chapters of Scripture, right? You know, kind of like the genealogies, kind of like the uh, uh, family tables in the Old Testament, blah, blah, blah. You know, there's a list of uh, 40-something names in this chapter. But this list is Paul's legacy in the Church of Rome. These are people that Paul knew or knew of, uh, people that he had invested his life in, and this chapter is all about leaving a legacy. And you know, gang, one day you and I are going to be done with our time here on the earth, and the question is going to be, what sort of list like this could we write? And so my challenge to each one of you is to leave a legacy and not skip over uh, these names and just go, uh, you know, I have no idea who uh, uh, Andronicus or Junia or Ampliatus, I can't even say it, Urbanus or Stachus or Apelles or Herodian or, you know, we can't even pronounce those names today. But in each name, there's a story. And in each name, there's a legacy 
that someone has invested in that person and called them to faith in Christ. And so my challenge to all of us in this room is that as we're part of that uh, section that comes after the comma at the end of Acts, that we leave a legacy. Chapter 16 is important. Don't skip over chapter 16. Okay? All right, so do you have any easy questions uh, for the uh, uh, book of Romans? Okay? No election questions, please. No, just kidding. If you want to ask election questions, bring it on. All right. All right, so we all want to get done. That's what we want to do. All right, so overview, the theme, salvation, Romans 1, 16 and 17 would be my theme verses for the uh, uh, book, key verses, key word, gospel. Talked about Romans uh, 6.23, one verse evangelism. Talked about five big words, justification, propitiation, redemption, reconciliation, and, uh, and the last one, sanctification. And then finally, uh, uh, a couple of outlines. Remember the five S's. And then we had three ideas about the plan of salvation. And then finally, the parting thought about leave a legacy. And finally, the book of Hebrews. Anybody know where this picture's from? That is the famous Jewish fort of Masada. Um, Over on this side, leading up to about right here, the Romans built a siege ramp that you cannot believe how much earth they had to move to build this siege ramp that basically goes from the bottom of this cliff all the way to the top. And that's what they used to uh, attack Masada. Okay, um, And actually in the background, you can see the uh, uh, Dead Sea right there. All right, um, Book of Hebrews, let's talk about it. All right, so how's this for uncertainty? Uncertainty surrounds where the book was written, uh, the date of the book, the place of its writing, and finally, um, my first... Uh, um, of five points is um, the author. Uncertainty surrounds the author. We don't know who wrote the book of uh, uh, Hebrews. You know, Paul typically identified himself. And so, uh, um, although there are some similarities to uh, uh, Paul's writing, there are also some very dis- uh, distinct differences between the writing of Hebrews and um, Paul's letters and his typical vocabulary and whatnot, okay? Um, but someone who knew Paul uh, likely was the author, and that's why I think it may well have been written by his companion in some of his missionary journeys, Barnabas. That would be my number one choice. Um, Luke has been mentioned as a possible candidate. Clement of Rome, Apollos, also mentioned as a candidate, Silvanus, or uh, he's also called Silas, who uh, Paul mentioned in some of his letters. Uh, Philip is mentioned as a possible author. And even Priscilla is mentioned uh, by some scholars as a possible author. Okay? So we just don't know. some reason, the Holy Spirit wanted that one to be a mystery. But it's clear that it is one of the most compelling um, scriptures about the um, uh, 
superiority and deity of Christ. Okay? And so what about the next one, the purpose of the book of Hebrews? Well, it was written at a time when a bunch of the early Jewish converts to Christianity were contemplating returning to Judaism because of the uh, uh, persecutions that they were undergoing. Okay? And so the writer of Hebrews encourages his readers to persevere. There's a key word for the book, to persevere and not neglect or give up on so great a salvation. And to um, underscore his uh, call to persevere, he proves uh, without a doubt the superiority of this new faith by demonstrating repeatedly the superiority of Christ. And that takes me to uh, our third point. This book is all about the superiority of the Son. And it's one of the two ways of... uh, organizing or looking at the book. Okay, so let's uh, do some uh, thumbing through the book of uh, Hebrews right quick. And turn to uh, Hebrews 1, uh, verses 1 through 3, and let's uh, read several of these. Okay, and so we start off and we see long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these days... He's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why would you leave following that person? That's the point of the author, and in doing so, he uh, establishes that the Son is superior to the Old Testament prophets. And then in the very next verse, it says, Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He's superior to angels. And then if you'll turn over to chapter 3, verse 3, you know, who was one of the great patriarchs of the Jewish faith? Well, certainly Moses. Here's what uh, the author of Hebrews says about Jesus and Moses. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. Superior to Moses. And if you look at uh, uh, chapter 4, the end of chapter 4, we see that he's a superior high priest. It says, uh, uh, since then... This is 4.14, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then draw with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's a superior high priest. Then chapter 7. Chapter 7 is all about um, he uh, has a superior priesthood. And look at chapter 8, verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. So he is uh, um, 
the minister of a superior ministry, and he ministers um, a superior covenant. And then in chapter 9, we see that uh, he ministers from a superior sanctuary, and uh, he offered a superior sacrifice. And finally, let's turn over to uh, chapter 10. This is uh, kind of the so what. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Okay? And then uh, skipping on down... It says in verse 14 that for by a single sacrifice, he, Jesus, has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. And so uh, Jesus' sacrifice results in a superior sanctification for us. He offered a sacrifice for sin once, and it took care of our sin for all time if we put our trust in him. And so the so what is the superior sanctification and the superior salvation that it offers for us. And so as you read through the book of Hebrews, keep in mind to look for the ways in which the author proves over and over again that this son, this uh, man Jesus, this um, God-man is superior and therefore Uh, He calls on his uh, Hebrew brothers not to turn away from the faith that they've been following. Okay? So that's one way of looking at uh, an organization of the book, looking for the superiority of the son. A second way of doing that, uh, the book is organized around five different warnings. Okay? And let's look at those right quick. Turn back to uh, chapter 2. We start with a warning against drifting away. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared uh, at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard." And so he warns against drifting away. He's talking to people who have put their trust in Christ, and now they're uh, being threatened with just kind of drifting away from following Christ. And so that's the first warning is against drifting away. Okay? The next one is in chapter 4, and it's a warning uh, against failing to enter God's rest. Look at verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And skip down to 10 and 11. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So don't miss out on God's rest. And then in a very famous uh, uh, passage that raises uh, uh, questions that are uh, about as hard as the election and predestination questions, um, we have in uh, um, the end of chapter 5, 
we have a warning against uh, failing to move on to maturity. Verse 11, chapter 5, verse 11 starts, About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain. So the author says, hey, button your chin straps, uh, since you become dull of hearing. Uh, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, he's getting on them, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice uh, to discern or to distinguish good from evil. And then you notice how often he uses the term let us. Those, that's a great little phrase to look for as you're reading the book of Hebrews. Uh, and when he says, let us, it's a, uh, a warning to old Bob here that, hey, this is what I need to listen up and do. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, etc., etc., etc. Wagner has um, done a message on these verses in Hebrews 6 that he calls the most difficult uh, verses um, in the New Testament. Uh, go listen to those verses if you are having trouble stumbling over uh, the uh, description in uh, uh, Hebrews 6. But this is a warning against failing to move on to maturity. It's not okay to just wallow around like a bunch of babies. Okay, We need to go on to maturity. And when we do that, look what it says. It says that uh, by constant practice, we will be able to distinguish good from evil. There is benefit from moving on to maturity. And then the last two uh, um, are in chapter 10 and in chapter 12. And chapter 10 deals with a warning against willful sin. That's uh, chapter 10, verses 26 to 31. And then finally, uh, let's turn to uh, um, Hebrews 12. These are verses you probably know. And if you don't, um, you should. They're great verses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, chapter 11, sometimes called the uh, um, Faith Hall of Fame, uh, let us also, there's that phrase again, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why would you want to fall away from such a great salvation? And so that exhortation, that warning is against giving up the race. And my final point on uh, Hebrews is, you know, together... The superiority of the Son and these five warnings form the perfect blend of uh, exposition, description of uh, uh, great doctrines of Scripture, and exhortation, uh, the warnings against falling away from the faith. So it's the perfect blend of of exposition and exhortation. And gang, that's a great way to look at the book of Hebrews looking at how we blend the superiority of the Son with warnings against going on to persevere in the faith.
Mitchell? Uh, the warning. Uh, the last warning was against um, falling, uh, giving up the race. Okay, the warnings again were drifting away. Hebrews two uh, against falling, failing to enter into God's rest. Uh, chapter four against failing to move on to maturity. Uh, the end of five, starting in six, uh, against willful sin. In chapter ten, verses twenty six to thirty one. And then against giving up the race in chapter 12, uh, verses 1 and 2, and continuing. Okay? Yes, ma'am. Mm hmm. Okay, and so what I take from what you just read is that those guys don't have it definitively figured out either. Okay, there are a lot of views about predestination and election, but let me just assure you that the truth of predestination and the truth of election is taught in Scripture, and God is said to be sovereign in his call, uh, but at the same time, in a parallel truth, um, the idea of human responsibility to make a decision. And, you know, some teach the doctrine of double predestination, which I kind of heard alluded to there, which is a view that God um, destined some to heaven and some to hell. And that is a view that I reject. That is a view that Todd Wagner rejects. And that is a view that I think is counter to Scripture. Okay? But you are exegetes of Scripture, and you've got to work that out uh, to determine your own understanding, okay? Um, there are godly men and women that hold to the view of double predestination, okay? But there are uh, also a bunch of godly men and women who uh, reject it because I don't think that God um, makes people to um, send them to hell. I think he gives everybody a chance to make a decision to accept Christ, okay? Um, but some make the decision to not accept Christ, and God is a gentleman, and he will allow them to reap the consequences of their decision to reject Christ eternally, okay? So those, thanks for uh, sharing that. Those are um, topics that we can continue to talk about after we finish here. Um, but they are worthy of a lot more study. And in fact, from time to time at training day, we teach classes on those very topics. Okay? There actually, you can find uh, discussions on, about each of those topics of predestination and election on the Watermark Media website. And so I encourage you to go look for those uh, if you're uh, interested in 
um, diving deeper. And let me close with this thought. We are offering uh, on Saturday something that is really fun and really cool. It's called Training Day, and it is a series of classes. Uh, You could take one in the morning, one in the afternoon, on a variety of topics that are going to be a lot of fun. A bunch of them are going to be taught by our residents, and some of the smartest people on our staff are our residents. They are serious students of the word. They're going to be teaching some of our classes. Um, Scott and Jen Klaus are going to be teaching a class on heaven. And uh, if you know, Jen is, uh, um, uh, has cancer, and uh, it's, uh, she has a very serious diagnosis, and uh, that's a class not to be missed. As she talks about something that she uh, may well be experiencing um, at some point, okay, not too distant future. So um, I would really encourage you, if you have time on Saturday, come to one of those classes. All right? Hey, gang, it has been a privilege uh, to talk about the epistles. I'm sorry that we uh, skimmed over lightly, uh, but I would love to have the chance, if you have questions about any of the particular epistles, uh, to talk more with you. You can shoot me an email or come up here after we finish. And then next week, we're going to be spending the uh, whole hour and a half talking about the book of Revelation and the end times. Okay? So let me pray for us. Lord, thanks for the chance to uh, have uh, explored your word, to think about uh, um, what was happening with the start and spread of the church in the book of Acts, to think about uh, um, Paul's treatise on salvation, and to uh, understand more Uh, just what your son did for uh, each one of us in this room. And then to uh, be encouraged to persevere in the book of Hebrews and to be warned against failing to uh, neglect so great a salvation. So, Lord, uh, uh, may these truths be something that just uh, aren't things that go in one ear and out the other, but that they impact our lives so that we may continue to write on uh, the rest of the story after that comma in the book of Acts. So thanks for these friends and thanks for this time. We're grateful, Father, for uh, your spirit, and uh, we're grateful for the privilege of in a free country of studying your word. Amen.